We hope you enjoy this message from St. Martin C3, a location of C3 Church, Christchurch. We are doing a series at the moment called Knowing God. And in this series, uh, we are exploring the nature of God. Who is God? It's kind of one of the big questions of life, right? Does God exist? And if he does, who is he? And so that's what we've been doing in this series. It's been, it's been awesome. Uh, if eternity is only exploring the depths and the heights of God's nature, it will be amazing because he is amazing. Amen? We have an amazing God and an amazing King. And so we've explored already in this series that God is infinite, but he's also so close to us. He's sovereign. He expresses himself in the Trinity, and we saw last week that he is a holy God. Today, what we're going to explore is the number one descriptor in the Bible of God's nature. It's found very clearly in 1 John 4, verse 8. It says this, But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love. And we want to explore what that means this morning. And the first thing for us to think about is, well, what do we mean when we say love? We love so many things. You can love a TV show and you can love your newborn baby. You know, it's not quite the same thing somehow. Uh, you can, uh, you, your hobby can be the love of your life or your husband can be the love of your life. And maybe they are the same thing, but maybe they shouldn't be. Uh, you can make love and you can love books. It can be something you're dependent upon. Plants love sunshine. You can love your mum and you can love pizza. Uh, And I especially love my mum if she brings me pizza, (laughs) right? Love is a word with 22 definitions, or at least with that many meanings at dictionary.com. It can mean anything from a description of something you find enjoyment in to something that runs to the depth of your soul. What do we mean when we say God is love? Well, here's an interesting game. If you had only one word to describe love, What word would you use? What word would you use if you could describe love using one word? Uh, I came across this week a list of uh, 20-somethings who answered this question. Here are some of their answers. What is love in one word? Sarah said, warm. Brianna said, powerful. John said, passion. Dee said, beautiful. Sonia said, worth waiting for, which must be hyphenated because it's more than one word. Uh, so, you know, it might be true, but I discount it. I'm like, no, one word only. Uh, okay, Kevin said, very pedantic. Kevin said, happiness. Corey said, magical. And Allegra said, wild. These responses show our world's view of love, emphasizing the way that we see love. And a way that we use often love is about fulfilling our desires. And sometimes what can happen is we use desire as a substitute for God's love. And we look for the things that maybe fill our inner passions. And we think that's what love is all about. We're captivated by sex and by other desires. But these are pale counterfeits of what God brings. C.S. Lewis has this great way of explaining how we do this. He says this in The Weight of Glory. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's why meeting uh, our desires does not satisfy us. Pornography doesn't. Sex doesn't. It can't satisfy. Because as strong as we think their lure is, it's actually too weak to fill the need inside of us. It's a need that can only be filled by the love of God. And we need to uh, make room for God's love and to see how his love is so much stronger and greater than any other love that we've seen. Otherwise, we're doing nothing but sitting in a slum making mud pies when there is a much better offer out there. Love, then, is not a word that you can discover by looking it up in the dictionary or oftentimes by looking at our human experience, though that can help. You know love by experiencing it, by seeing it in action. So this morning, we're going to look at three biblical images of God's love for us to consider so that we can know what God's love is so that we can experience his love for ourselves. It's the greatest need our hearts have, is to be filled with the love of God. So let's first figure out what it is, and then how we can be filled with it. The first image is this. It's from John chapter 13. And we're going to read uh, verses 1 to 5. It's the night that Jesus was betrayed. The night before he would go to the cross and sacrifice himself. And before it happened, on strike. remarkable occurred. Verse 1, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. Or as another version says, he showed them the extent of his love. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. Think about this image. This is the Son of God, the most glorious and powerful person ever, the most holy person ever. And he gets on his hands and his knees and washes the feet of his disciples. For Jesus, love is an action. Love is an action, a selfless action. Here is the holy God wiping the unholiness of his disciples. Last week, we went into, I think, probably unnecessary detail to let you know what was on Moses' sandals uh, when he walked into the burning bush or towards the burning bush that made them unholy. And the same thing was probably on the disciples' feet. Here is Jesus, and he takes the role of a servant and loves them by cleansing them. God's love is not a love of mere intention. God's love is active, it brings life, and it transforms. We see God's active servant uh, love in the way that he serves us, the way he died for us. And even think about the way that he gave us life and that he sustains our life. Uh, this, birthday, uh, this week was my birthday. Uh, October the 19th is a good day to have a birthday, right, Josiah? Yes, and a good day to be born 
prematurely. I was a month premature, and I was also uh, unexpected, second of twins, uh, born very unexpectedly on the 19th of October 1980. So this week was my second 21st birthday. And uh, I was um, a little bit touch and go, apparently, 50-50. Apparently, my mum tells me I came out legs first, one leg at a time, which she says was the most painful experience of her life, and I, can, I can't even imagine. Uh, I was not a well baby, however. I was in an incubator for the first two weeks. There was a 50% chance I wouldn't make it. So this week, as I reflected on my, my 42 good years of life, and as I always do, I'm always grateful that I get to be here. Have you ever had those moments where you're like, wow, I actually get to exist. I get to live. I get to enjoy life. It's not, never perfect, but life is a gift. It is an expression of the love of God, that he would serve humanity by creating them, by involving them in this world that he loves, by saving them. The love of God is, is actively holding our world up, says the scriptures. We might say that he has the whole world in his hand. It's a, a sustaining of love. So we know whatever happens, we have a God who is above all. Your world does not need to shake for you have a God who wants your best. You can trust him because he loves you. I think the most remarkable thing about Jesus washing his disciples' feet was when he chose to do it. John tells us that Jesus knew that his hour had come. In other words, he knew that this would be his last moment with his disciples. The last moment before he went to the cross. His last day. What would you do on your last day on earth? I imagine number one on your feet wouldn't be to wash the scum off, uh, sorry, number one on your list wouldn't be to wash the scum off the feet of your employees, right? I'm going to go into my workplace and I'm going to go, hey, look, guys, I'm about to die, so I just want to wash your feet or I want to clean your car or whatever else, other dirty job that you have to do. Yet, in doing this, Jesus showed what was happening in the ultimate expression of God's love. How did Jesus love us? Love is a man hanging on a tree with his heart poured out for you and for me. That's what love is. When you think of God's love, when you think of that active, selfless love of Jesus washing his disciples' feet and going to the cross. God's love is active. The second picture of God's love for us is found in the book of Zephaniah. It's a book in the Old Testament. It's a prophet, and he spoke of the redemption of Israel. And there's this amazing verse in Zephaniah 3, verse 17. It says this, for the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. God's love is not just active, but it's exuberant. It's emotional. It's affectionate. God enjoys his creation. God is, is happy in his love for all that he's made. God rejoices over people as he thinks about the redemption he wants to bring them. He delights over them. He calms fears with his love. He rejoices over them with joyful song. It's the over-the-top 
kind of love. What this word rejoice here apparently means, uh, particularly in a Jewish context, is it means that God is, is singing and dancing over his people. It's like he's spinning around in circles because he's just so happy about the redemption that he's going to bring them. It delights in them. It's this beautiful, beautiful picture of what God is. Can I ask, when have you been so happy about something that you were jumping up and down? Have you ever had one of those jumping up and down uh, moments where you go, yes, I'm just so happy about something or anything? It might have been over a person or it might have been over a thing. Now, I must admit, when I think about this, my mind goes to sports, right? Because it seems to be that, uh, and maybe this is a failing of mine, that whenever I get excited about something, it's usually about sports. And 2015 was a great year for New Zealand sport. Uh, I admit, I had one of those dancing around the room moments. Uh, and what it was, and this was a year that New Zealand uh, won the, the uh, Rugby World Cup, but it wasn't that moment, not for me. See, I like cricket. And particularly, last night was a good night for me as a cricket fan. But I like cricket. And my, my, one of my favourite sports moments happened in 2015 uh, after the final ball of the semi-final of the Cricket World Cup. And because I love it so much, I thought I'd show it to you. Let's put the, the video up. Elliot on strike. So that moment was the semi-final of the Cricket World Cup. Five to win off two balls, Grant Elliott facing. And I'm not sure if you saw it, but the crowd, I've never seen a crowd go that ballistic at a, a shot before. And my family was asleep in the house, and I was uh, watching it by myself, but I, I was very silently screaming, yeah, jumping up and down. That's the picture that Scripture wants us to think about when we think about how God feels about us. He's cheering in the stands. He's jumping up and down for joy for his people. That's his celebration. He's joyful. He's emotional when he sees them redeemed. The same was true in the first redemption of Israel when he actively delivered them from Egypt. See, God had a purpose for Israel. And sometimes we think God is kind of a utilitarian God. He saves people so that they can do something for him. Hey, God, hey, he's got good purposes in the world. He wants Israel to do it, so he saves them so that they can do it. Uh, and then there comes a point where, where they're wondering that. They're going, well, God, why, why did you save us? And Moses, as he reflects on it, tells them that it wasn't just because God wanted them to do something. It was because he loved them. Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you. God has affection for his people. But he didn't set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Look, if God wanted to choose someone who was going to be powerful and do amazing things, he wouldn't have chosen you. There were better choices. If it was just about, well, I've got a job to get done, I'm going to choose the number one person, the number one draft pick, well, you wouldn't be it. But God has affection for you. Why then? Why? Verse 8, but it was because the Lord loved you. He's affectionate towards you. He loved you. There's a warm place in God's heart towards you, Israel. That's what Moses is saying. 
And he kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God do it? Because he loved his people. He had great affection for them. God's love is emotional. When he thinks of you, when he thinks of me, he feels warmth. He wants to connect with us. A.W. Tozer says it this way. He says, It is a strange and beautiful eccentricity of the free God that he has allowed his heart to be emotionally identified with men. He's a free God. He could do absolutely anything. But he chooses to allow his heart to be emotionally identified with men. Self-sufficient as he is, he wants our love and will not be satisfied till he gets it. Free as it is, he has let his heart be bound to us forever. Wow. That's the love of God. It's active. It's emotional. Can you feel the depth of God's love towards his people? God's love flows from who he is, and he has deep affection for the people whom he loves. God really cares for us. This is the love of God. It is both active and it's exuberant. And one more picture for us this morning. The final image is found in the story of Jesus from Luke 15. It kind of brings these together and adds one more element. Luke 15, verse 4. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Ah, you know, just sheep. They don't really matter. I've got 99 of them. There'll be more lambs. So what do you do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness? Leave the 99 who are safe. Leave them behind in the wilderness. Go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he's found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and, have, and haven't strayed away. So we're seeing God's love, and his love is active, and it's exuberant, and we see that in this passage here. But the key thing here is that God's love is also personal. The shepherd is not just concerned about the whole group. He's concerned about the one lost sheep. God loves you. Sometimes we might think, well, sure, God loves the world and his creation and and his good purposes. But what Jesus is saying here, which is totally revolutionary, is that God's love is not just a big picture thing, but it is a personal thing. That he would leave the 99 to go and get the one. That he would leave the others behind just to find you with his love. Just to find uh, your, your, your sibling, your family member with his love. Just to find your neighbor with his love. God is hunting and he's searching for the lost ones. That he might show his love to them. God does not just actively love the whole world. He actively loves you. God does 
doesn't just exuberantly love the whole world. He exuberantly loves you. He doesn't just rejoice over his creation. He feels affection and joy over you and every other person in our great world. God's love cannot be imitated. God's love cannot be, uh, it can't be mimicked. I'm reading this really interesting uh, book at the moment about AI and AGI, which is Automated uh, General Intelligence. And the book asks the question whether robots will become super intelligent and fulfill human roles. And and actually, this is kind of already happening. A number of industries already use robots and AI to do the jobs that humans once did. And I even saw an article this morning saying that some of the most popular artwork in the world now is created by AI. Yeah, uh, they think that in 10 years, probably most of our music will be uh, written by uh, artificial intelligence. They think, yeah, robots are taking over. They'll treat them nicely. Uh, so, So I want you to imagine for a second, we invented a robot that did everything a loving person did. They showed all the signs of love. Um... And and again, this is already happening a little bit. They have online AI chatbots now that lonely people can talk to. So if you feel lonely and you want someone to talk to, you can talk to a robot online. And a lot of people actually seem to find this quite, quite soothing. You write something and they respond based on the way they've been programmed. But imagine you could go further. Imagine they actually looked like people. They made eye contact, they talked to you and listened well, they showed attention, they gave you a hug, they sat with you and they laughed with you, they were active in showing love, doing things for you just because they've been programmed to know you would like it. Here's a question. Would you feel that that machine loved you? Would you feel that that machine loved you? You might feel that they could mimic all the actions of love. And it might be better than nothing, right? But would you feel as though that robot really loved you? I don't think you would, right? It would be fake love. AI doesn't care. It's just doing what it's programmed to do. It's not personal love. And this tells us something very important about love. Love is only love when it comes from a conscious, intelligent being. Love is only love when it comes from a conscious, intelligent being, from, from a person to a person. It has to be relational. Now, some people struggle to feel the love of God because he's not bodily present. They want love they can physically touch, love that has skin on it. But as we've just discovered, love only means something when the touch of our skin fills our heart. The touch of our skin filling our heart. It's a means to an end. The end is actually the the sense of love within us. And while God is not bodily present, he is able to fill our hearts personally with his love in a way that no other can. A warm hug is a means to an end. It is not love itself. When we experience the love of God, we are experiencing a personal connection with him. His love is more than action. His love has the depth of the greatest ocean and the warmth of our closest friend. That is the love that Jesus said God wants to bring to each person. God's love is active. It's exuberant and it's personal. That's the love of God. It's more powerful than the sun and closer than the air we breathe. 
It's what every heart and soul is longing for. But this leaves a pretty big question for us that I want to spend the rest of our time exploring. Why doesn't everyone feel it? Why doesn't everyone feel the love of God? And that applies to those who maybe aren't Christian. But I know plenty of Christians as well who would say, yeah, yeah, I believe in God. I believe it's all true. I believe he is who he said he is, and I'll commit my life to that. But do I feel his love? Do I feel that deep, warm connection with him? Maybe I don't. Maybe I, I don't, but, but I want to. If God's love is so great, how come we don't always feel a connection with him? And there are two things here I want us to think about. Two things that I think that we can apply to our life, that we might experience God's love more. The first one is that you have to be ready to receive God's love. Could it be we are hiding from the love of God? We all in some way hide from love, hide from the love of each other, hide from love with God. See, the first and the worst result of the fall was hiding from God. God came into the garden the day uh, that sin entered the world. And he went to spend time with his people. And what's the first thing God says? He says, Adam and Eve, where are you? And he couldn't find them because the result of the sin and the curse and the fall was that they hid themselves from God. We still hide from him. For them it was shame, a sense of utter unworthiness, causing them to close the doors to their heart. So let us consider one more image. It's an image that was actually given to Christians in the book of Revelation. Revelation 3 verse 20. Look, it says, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. A painting of this scene showed Jesus knocking at the door, but the artist showed no door handle. And they went to the artist and said, you've made a mistake, you've forgotten to put the door handle on the, the door as Jesus is knocking. And he said, no, no, I haven't made any mistake. He said, the door handle's on the inside. This is a door that can only be opened from the inside. God is knocking at our door. Yet many times we, we won't and we don't open the door. Sometimes it's shame over sin. Sometimes it's past trauma you don't want him to touch. Sometimes it's the busyness of life. Oh God, I just don't have time for you to come in right now. But there's no better thing, no more healing thing than opening your life to the love of God. So let me ask you, what gets in the way of you receiving God's love? I know what it is for me. I, for me, at times, it's a performance mentality. I was um, lucky when I was young to have two parents who loved me, and, and uh, in spite of my muck-ups, they still loved me. But my friends told me a different story. When I was kid, uh, a kid, I was with a group of friends and got told one day that there were too many people in this group of friends, and they needed to eliminate either me or someone else because, I don't know, why? I don't know. It's like, hey, we've got seven people here. We really want six. That's just the number that we have to have. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do a running race to determine who gets to hang out with us. How's that for performance? <laughs> and guess what? I lost the running race. 
And so I, hey, I didn't fit anymore. I didn't have a group of friends. I kind of had to try and find something else to do during lunchtime. Man, kids are cruel, right? Kids are nasty. But this was not a one-off incident confined to me alone. I saw this happen over and over again. Many others rejected from groups because they didn't measure up. People who weren't allowed to belong because they weren't clever enough or fun enough or they just didn't fit the group. One time, a group of my friends at high school wrote and signed a letter to say that another one of our group was a spoiled rich kid and couldn't be part of, couldn't hang out with us anymore. And I was like, man, and they said, so, so sign it. And I was like, guys, no way am I signing that letter. But that is the message that I was taught. If you don't measure up, then you're out. When it came to my relationship with God, I carried this performance mindset through. If I don't do enough, I don't deserve God's love. If I don't read the Bible enough, if I sin, if I'm not changing the world, then I can't ask God to bring me his love. I don't deserve it. And God walks into the garden of my life and he asks, where are you? And I respond, I'm hiding. Don't come looking for me. I'm not ready to be seen for who I am. Yet this is when I need God's love the most. And when he longs to bring his love the most. Romans 5 verse 8. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Maybe you've had that voice over you in your life to say, you're not enough. You can't be loved by God. God's not for you because you're a sinner. Because you mark it up because you're not a holy person. But that's exactly when Jesus came. And that's what Jesus wants to bring to us. His amazing grace that says, regardless of what you've done, regardless of who you are, my love is ready there for you. Will you open the door and will you receive it? My attitude was nonsense. God love, God's love is bigger than all of that. He is the one that leaves the 99 to find the one. He is the God of all who reaches down to clean and purify me. He is the God who dances over me with his love. I'm in his team, I'm in his group, I'm accepted. I need to remind myself of that sometimes before I receive God's love. So I've got to stop hiding. I've got to stop shutting off parts of my life to God in fear that he might reject me, in fear that he might say, oh gosh, if that's what it's like in your life, I'm not coming in. God is so much bigger than that. So what is it for you? Whether, it, whether it's hiding uh, through performance or shame or trauma, whatever it is, it's time to stop hiding. God loves you. Come out from behind the trees. Open the door. Let yourself be known by God. And then once we've done that, once we're ready to receive God's love, the Bible's really simple on what we do next. All it says is to ask. Just, just ask. Jesus tells a story about a person who knocks on their neighbor's door to find food for a friend. And the person doesn't answer straight away. And so their encouragement is, keep knocking, keep asking, keep seeking, and you will find. And it finishes this way. Luke 11, 11 to 13. 
You fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What is the best of gifts that God longs to give us? The gift of his Holy Spirit. He longs to give us his Spirit. And through his Holy Spirit, we receive his love. Romans 5 verse 5. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us, who? The Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. The Holy Spirit pours the love of God the Father into our hearts. So when we are ready to receive his love, we can simply ask him and keep asking him. And his active, exuberant, and personal love is waiting for us. If we open up our heart and keep asking him to bring it. The great uh, challenge of our lives is to cultivate a habit of love and reflect the love of the Creator. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To learn more about our church, visit c3chch.org.